0: We think we've heard of that before Stranger stories every day Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring So listen friends, we'll blow your mind With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing
1: Recording in progress
0: Recording in progress. Um, All right. <laughs> I think
1: every week week we're gonna that's just gonna be our new like sign on.
0: <laughs> right. And no, and then it's just gonna become an ASMR
1: podcast. Yeah. Welcome.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am your host, Emilio Poro. Yeah,
1: we'll just do and that. I am Scotty
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That was just creepy. That wasn't even ASMR. That was just
0: it <laughs> was <laughs> it was it you know the you know the biblical descriptions of the angels? other like weird i think <laughs> that's what that sounded like yeah.
1: <laughs> all right well this is the weirdest thing podcast uh, yes it is recording late again in the week uh, so oh, you're getting goodness. this one like hot off the motherfucking presses i guess yeah this
0: one's h- hot and fresh yeah uh because i can't Handle my life, I guess. I don't mean like (laughs) I can't handle it, but I can't like manage my own life. That's what I mean.
1: To be fair, to explain to our listeners, you were out of town visiting family.
0: I should just know myself better than to think that I'm going to be able to get work done. Yeah. When I'm like not in my home yeah because I, you, I like it's just impossible i mean i'll admit
1: when you were like i'll bring my recording stuff with me and we can record while i'm up there i was like mm, okay we'll see that's a pipe dream <laughs> I was This like, is. i thought well i, I was giving you a 50 50 odds
0: this, <laughs> this is something and i don't know i don't know what it is. I don't know if it's something about me or if it's something about the people in my life, but I will like confidently make a mistake. I will like confidently call <laughs> something the wrong name or you know, do something like this where I'm like, I will absolutely be able to record while I'm visiting family in Colorado. And no one goes, Hey, that yeah, that's not that's like that's incorrect or and like this type <laughs> of a thing with the with recording I understand because that is a thing that is a bit of a thing to be like oh mm, you're not going to be able to do that but when i make a mistake i have gone months before finally figuring out the mistake <laughs> on my own and then i'll be like why didn't anybody say anything and the amount of times people are like oh well i just didn't want to say anything i'm like what the <laughs> what the actual f yeah. like and then that makes me distrustful of those people because I feel like if I have food in my teeth if like my skirt is tucked up into my underwear <laughs> or something like these people won't tell me. Cause they'll be like, well, I'm, she'll well, probably figure it
1: out. Well, or it's, you're so confident about it that it's like, well, I mean, I'm sure she put that food there. Cause that's, that's like a new look or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. it no, I'm going to say, I'm going to have it stated here on the record. <laughs> Please correct me if I'm, especially if I'm wrong about something, like mm. I'm not, I'm not precious about it yeah well
1: this one i was i I wanted to give you a chance to to, (laughs) you know see and to be fair i mean i i got busy too i wasn't even ready with my story so it worked out fine but anyway so yeah we're recording this the day before and before i know you're studying first i just want to say i know i was texting you about this yesterday but for oh yeah all our heavy metal fans who are listening probably all two of you i just want to say rest in peace to joey jordison yeah uh, the drummer for slipknot uh i met him here ago I actually interviewed him for my college radio station just like super nice guy like one of the nicest dudes you could ever imagine like being in a heavy metal band um, that's but always yeah,
0: nice to hear
1: yeah he passed away yesterday at or I guess this week I think on Monday at uh, mm. 46 years old yeah and I don't think they know what happened to him yet but anyway I just oh, yeah. wanted to drop that out there rest in peace Joey you're awesome one yeah. of the best drummers in metal and you will be missed so yeah all right
0: Okay. All right. You also have a, another thing, but do you want to talk about that when we get to your story? Uh, so do you yeah. Want to do, Cause it's okay. baseball
1: related. So okay. <laughs> we'll just do it all together.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Let me adjust my zoom window. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. And then of course, again, the way I'm always like, yeah, 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 I'm ready. And then I'm actually not ready to go. <laughs> so this is me vamping as I try to size my Google document to fit the screen. Okay. So I don't um, even
1: have any idea what you're doing this week because you said you yes. changed your story. So.
0: Yes, I did. And I can talk about that because I get, well, like I think uh, at least I will do the, the, my original story later on. Mm-hmm. If not, that we handle it as maybe like a two-parter. Yeah, it was um, a
1: big subject.
0: <laughs> it was a <laughs> big subject. It was. Yeah. yeah. So I had originally wanted to do why the war on drugs was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And when I started trying to, research this in Denver. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is this is an actual pipe dream. Like there's yeah. no possible way. That's something that I think I'm going to have to work on concurrently with other stories and like yeah. spend spend some actual time doing that. Um uh, but okay, let's uh so let's get started. Okay, so within the halls of the Smithsonian Museum, there sits a 45.52 carat gemstone. It is mm. dark grayish blue in color with a cushion antique brilliant cut. The stone is also surrounded by 16 white diamonds. It is a sight to behold. It is an Mm. impressive sight. And the legend has it that anyone who possesses the stone will fall victim to tragedy. Mm. Past owners and even carriers and transporters have gone insane, been torn to pieces by dogs or mobs, and even lost their literal heads. This is the story of the Curse of the Hope diamond. Nice. Nice. I figured baseball, baseball diamond diamonds, actual diamonds. No, that's that's a good tie-in. Like it all that. makes sense in my head. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. Sources for this are The Secret History of the Hope Diamond, How Pierre Cartier Sold a Cursed Jewel, written by Francesca Cartier-Bruckel. Experiencing America, A Smithsonian Tour Through American History, a Wikipedia, of course, an article from Mental Floss titled 10 Victims of the Hope Diamond, and an article from Great Courses Daily titled The Curse of the Hope Diamond, by Richard Curran PhD so let's begin at the beginning shall we okay. all right about <laughs> about 1.1 million years ago <laughs> <laughs> Wow,
1: so at the beginning, you really mean at the beginning.
0: <laughs> the I was remembering the last time I did this, which was with, I think the Paul Williams story, when I was like, let's start at the beginning and talking about Los Angeles. And I was like 3000 years ago, yeah. but legit, this story does start 1.1 million years ago. Okay. Some carbon atoms formed some strong-ass bonds and what would eventually become the Hope Diamond was formed. Okay. The diamond contains a few, I'm not gonna get super science, you guys, but this is about the extent of it. But I guess the diamond contains some boron atoms, which mixed with the stone's carbon structure, and that's what accounts for the diamond's rare blue color. Um, I
1: was going to ask because I've obviously heard of the Hope Diamond. I was picturing a blue diamond, so it is the blue diamond that.
0: I'm yeah, and it is the interesting thing is is that like it's not blue like a sapphire or right. or like an aquamarine or something like that. It is like a you know the the weird color that babies' eyes are when they're first born. It's that like bluish gray color. It's it's that
1: color. Right, right, right.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an impressive stone. Okay, so that's where it gets its blue color from. So now we're going to jump forward to around 1666. And a gem merchant by the name of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier shows up in Paris with a large crudely cut stone weighing roughly 112.33 carats. So just to give you an idea of how big a carrot is, it's roughly, I think like six to 6.5 millimeters in diameter.
1: Oh, okay. So pretty small.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, on a finger, a carrot is right. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> on a finger, a carrot is perfect. It's perfection. <laughs> it is divine. So just to give you an idea, if something is about a hundred times what you would see in like a very respectable diamond, yeah. um, it's it's a big ass diamond. Um yeah. I think it's, like, around the size of, like, my palm. So, yeah. So uh, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier shows up in Paris with this crudely cut stone. Tavernier says that he got the stone from the Kohler mine in the Gunter district of Andhra Pradesh, India. Records are super vague Mm -hmm. about just how Tavernier came into the possession of the stone. He just sort of, like, shows up in Paris with it. And when they're like, where'd you get it? And he's like, mine in India. Mm. Um, There are rumors of like theft and stuff like that, but no one knows for sure. Um, Also, I didn't know this. At this time in the 1600s, India was the only place in the world that diamonds had been discovered. They hadn't been found in South Africa or where's the other big diamond Brazil maybe they hadn't been found anywhere else Mm -hmm. so all of these big diamonds were coming from India yeah and I'm sure the working conditions were just and equitable
1: (laughs) yeah I'm sure it was just like working at like Microsoft or something Uh
0: just like working at Google, <laughs> they had a cold bar and everything. Okay, so when Tavernier shows up in Paris with this massive blue diamond, it starts to be known as the Tavernier Blue. Okay. Now, Tavernier kept records of his travels to India, like pretty detailed records and journals of his travels to India, and he had like sketches of several large diamonds that he ended up selling to Louis the Fourteenth around 1668. Mm-hmm. There's a sketch of this large blue diamond among those records but Tavernier makes no mention of the stone it's just okay. like here's this big ass stone in his drawings but isn't like here's where i got it so there nothing uh, and
1: It just feels like there's something shady in that
0: history. Right? It feels like there's something shady going on from the jump. So like I said, all of this leads most people to believe that the origin of the stone is muddy at best. The only thing that historians can say with any certainty is that Tavernier probably got the stone somehow by hook or by crook during his travels to India between 1640 and 1667. Okay. Somewhere yeah. around sixteen seventy-eight, Louis the court jeweler, Jean Pital cuts the Tavernier Blue down to sixty-seven point one two five carats.
1: Okay, so cut it down like quite a bit.
0: Significantly, yeah. The resulting diamond is thereafter referred to as the blue diamond of the crown of France. Okay. So the diamond makes its way through the family members of the French crown. I could get into it, but I was not super interested in it. Yeah. (laughs)
1: that'll that'll come up in my story too a lot of like skipping big chunks of things yeah
0: Yeah. because it's just like passed from this monarch to this monarch and then went over to this cousin over here when he became regent and then was like it's stuff if you're super interested in the French monarchy go and check that out for yourself I encourage Mm -hmm. you to do that okay so after that it's known as the blue diamond of the crown of France and it gets put into a couple of different configurations it's like matched with other jewels it's in like you know put in different pieces blah 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 Uh, the diamond makes its way through the family members of the French crown, finally landing in the possession of Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette.
1: Mm.
0: On September 11th, 1792, Louis XVI and his family were hanging out in the temple because they'd been imprisoned there during the French Revolution.
1: (laughs) Just (laughs) just hanging out.
0: Just hanging, chilling. Just
1: lounging on some Yeah,
0: taking a social media break. (laughs) Um, When revolutionaries broke into the royal storehouse and stole most of the crown jewels. Mm, okay. that's also interesting to me too that it was like here is where we store the crown jewels and it was probably like you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: like a the store i mean like i don't know i just, like stuff history's weird okay <laughs> so okay so revolutionaries break in there they steal most of the crown jewels a lot of the jewels were recovered but the french blue as it's now known was not and at that point the stone disappears from history okay Okay. In 1793, Louis and Marie were guillotined, (laughs) and they're (laughs) the as you do, as you do, and they're sort of considered the first victims of the alleged curse. Okay. There's stories about Tavernier, like being torn apart by dogs and stuff, but there's also stories that say that he lived to 84. So
1: I, I mean, just me being me, I'm gonna go
0: with the first version, right? Torn. Okay. Okay. So fact, you heard it here. (laughs) First and last, Tavernier torn apart by dogs. Yeah. Louis and Marie get their heads chopped off. Everybody eats cake, uh, uh, I guess. And (laughs) um, the French blue disappears. Yeah. It's thought that the diamond was cut into two pieces and that the larger of the two pieces is what eventually became the Hope Diamond. Okay, and there's a lot of weird like gemology stuff in there, like finding like a leaden mold of the French blue stone. And so they were able to like say, oh, we think, yeah, this is definitely part. There's a lot of gemology stuff in there. Again, also, if you're curious, please go check it out. But
1: real quick question. Um, And you may be getting to this. So they cut it in half. One half becomes the hope diamond. Have they ever found the other half?
0: Not that I know of. Wow.
1: Okay. I don't think so. That's mm, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. So there's a report that, uh, and again, there's a lot of differing opinions on this, but there's a report that suggests that whenever the French blue was cut in two, the cut was butchered since it lobbed off about 23.5 carats and hurt its, quote, extraordinary luster. The exact whereabouts of the gem that would become the Hope Diamond throughout the next few decades are unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know that in 1812, a blue diamond with the shape, size, and color of the Hope diamond ends up in the possession of London diamond merchant, Daniel Eliasson. Okay. Some sources say that the record of the diamond being in Eliasson's possession comes just days after the 20-year statute of limitations had run out. Mm-hmm. Okay. That he like, like days, like a couple of days after the 20-year statute of limitations ran out, he was all look at this diamond I have. <laughs> And people were like curious. Okay, so anyway, so this massive blue diamond shows up in Great Britain and everybody's like wondering if it's the same diamond that had belonged to the French royalty and right. it ends up in the hands of King George IV. And here's some more diamond drama. So some think that the diamond was sold through private channels after George's death because I didn't know this. Apparently George Fourth had like massive debt, just like I, insane debt. Did you know that? I,
1: I think I actually weirdly just read that recently.
0: Interesting. I don't
1: remember what the story was, but.
0: It's just, I think it just doesn't compute in my head that a monarch would have debt. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But I mean, I guess, I guess they do. I guess they do. Um, (laughs) so some people think that they were like, you know, kind of like on the sly being like, Hey, we're going to sell this diamond because the King has like massive debts. There are other people who think that the diamond was stolen by someone named Elizabeth Cunningham, who was the King's last mistress. Mm. Okay. Let's just talk about that hair that she was the last mistress fucking keep it in your (laughs) pants, dudes. You're already king. Like, relax, please. (laughs) So either way, whether it was privately sold or stolen by Elizabeth Cunningham, the jewel didn't stay in the hands of the British royal family. Mm -hmm. Somewhere around 1839. And again, all of the dates for this first part of the story are real loosey goosey because everybody's like, we Think it was around this time. Yeah. So somewhere around 1839, the diamond is part of an entry of the gem collection catalog of a London banker named Henry Philip. Hope. And that's Mm. how the diamond gets its modern name. Okay. When Henry died, his death sparked a 10 year court battle over his like inheritance and his estate. Mm -hmm. And because I believe if I'm remembering correctly, him and his wife had no children, but he did have nieces and nephews and stuff. Mm. Henry's oldest nephew, Henry Thomas Hope got the diamond when everything was settled.
1: Mm. Okay.
0: Yeah. This diamond caused a fair amount of strife as it made its way through the Hope family. It was the cause of a lot of like jealousy and bitterness and families being like, you know, people being grumpy about who had the diamond, but it finally landed in the hands of Lord Francis Hope. He received the diamond as part of his inheritance in 1887, but okay apparently I think he was still under age and I can't remember if it was that he was still under age or if it was because he was a Lord that his inheritance was a life interest inheritance, meaning that Lord Francis could not sell any part of his inheritance without the court's permission. So I'm sorry. It must, I think it must be because he's a Lord. Yeah. That
1: sounds like some weird feudal. Right.
0: Like it's my, it's my, it's my diamond. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah.
1: I could do what I want with my diamond.
0: Don't tell me what to do with my diamond. Okay. <laughs> At some point, Francis married American concert hall singer May. I'm gonna butcher this name, but I think it's Yo- yohi okay. Um, while he was in possession of the diamond okay. within 10 years, Francis was bankrupt, his wife had run off with another man. And he was divorced I mean it was like Not even 10 years Yeah Francis ended up Selling the diamond For 29,000 pounds Which today Is roughly 3.17 million pounds mm. But back then Is low For that diamond I still yeah, I, I believe I
1: think so But
0: yeah Yeah um, So he ended up Selling it for 29,000 pounds To Adolf Weil, Who sold it To Simon Frankel Who fell on hard times during the depression of 1907, mm-hmm. Frankel referred to the gem as the hoodoo diamond. <laughs> so he's already like, fuck this, fuck really, this gem. This
1: something wrong with this diamond.
0: Yeah. <laughs> He's like, get this, they're playing. And it just just sounds like they're playing hot potato with this diamond, you know what I mean? Like it's passing from person to person. Frankel eventually sold the diamond to a, it's unclear, but it's either a Solomon or Salim Habib who was a wealthy, I believe, Turkish diamond collector who reportedly bought the diamond on the behalf of Sultan Abdul Hamid of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. This story again is also, like this particular section is also rife with rumors. There are some say that an auction catalog clearly stated that the gem was never owned by the Sultan, and there are others that say that the Sultan did in fact own the gem, but that he ordered Habib to sell it when his throne began to totter. I was going
1: well, what year? Like what? Around when? This is um
0: around 1907.
1: That can't be right. Yeah,
0: around 1907.
1: Yeah, I was going to say things were very quickly not going to be looking good for the Ottoman Empire.
0: Right. So that he, yeah. So again, hot potato. He's like, get this hoodoo gem out <laughs> of my sight. Boop. So Habib sold the diamond in 1909 for eighty thousand dollars today. That's two point three million dollars, and a, a Parisian jewel merchant named Simon Rosenau bought it for 400,000 francs. I don't know the conversion for francs, guys. A lot of francs. Like... (laughs) It's a lot of Franks. That's all you need to know. So of course, like Hot Potato Diamond, it's seen a lot of, it's it's been in a lot of hands at this point. By the way, little sidebar, in 1908, the first published stories about the curse of this Hope Diamond began to appear in. Do you want to take a do you want to take a guess at what publication started these rumors? i wish i was gonna no. say
1: like i mean it would make sense because they were doing all the houdini stuff and everything
0: nope it was the new york times <laughs> of course
1: <laughs> that would have been my second guess
0: <laughs> that old gray lady yep uh always pinnacle. accurate pinnacle of
1: <laughs> all that is right and true and of
0: journalism. journalistic excellence the new york times was like hey <laughs> have you heard about this cursed piece of carbon (laughs) Um, so the paper stated that the diamond itself was responsible for Frankel's failure and papers in DC and London started to pick up the story and they ran with it and then like papers everywhere started to run with it Mm. and by ran with it I mean that they literally made up increasingly elaborate tales of mysterious powers there's like shit about like mystical rays that shot out of the diamond (laughs) bleaching it's evil magic and like
1: (laughs) this is in the New York Times this (laughs) is (laughs) Otherwise known as the weekly world news.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, it's just insane. In a lot of the research that I did, there were a ton of people who referred to the Hope Diamond as a Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. That like, and once you became in possession of it, it's just, it's evil mystical powers washed over you and cursed you. So that's where like, you know, really when we start, when we're talking about like the rumors of Louis and Marie's beheadings, Frankel's failure, Hope's bankruptcy and divorce, like these newspaper articles from the New York times and papers in DC and London, that's really where these stories originate. Okay. In 1910, uh, Rosenau sold the diamond to Pierre Cartier for 550,000 francs. And I did, there was a conversion for that. It's about 2.2 million today. Okay. So quick sidebar, we're going to take a little dip into some history about Pierre Cartier. Uh, He was the grandson of uh, Louis Francois Cartier. And uh, Louis Francois was a French jeweler who would taken over the jewelry workshop of his teacher, Adolphe Picard. And he eventually founded the renowned Cartier Jewelry Company. Cartier is regarded as one of the most prestigious jewelry companies in the world. I know everybody's like, Tiffany's Tiffany's but. Inside knowledge, Cartier's. I mean, vastly better.
1: The only two that I've ever heard of are Cartier and Tiffany's, and like I am not someone who stays on top of you know jewelry news.
0: So. Right, and I mean you know you've got like De Beers and stuff, and they're God. I've, oh I stumbled, yeah, I guess I've heard of them. I stumbled upon a very interesting story about De Beers and how they came up with a diamond is forever, mm. and that whole thing about and like it was all it was all you know all marketing stuff, but oh, yeah. um like. Marketing history is really fascinating. Yeah. Cartier, big name in diamonds. Pierre, back to the grandson, Pierre, he was really into making sure that Cartier was the name in fine jewels. He said, quote, we must never lose our current reputation. In other words, we must only sell large jewels. Mm -hmm. So when he got his hands on the Hope Diamond in 1910, Pierre was like, fucking right. He knew the diamond (laughs) was huge. He knew it was like a huge get, but he also knew that it represented a massive risk. If Cartier was unable to sell the diamond, the financial fallout of having a gemstone that big would be significant
1: yeah yeah it's just a bunch of money for a
0: rock at that point yeah yeah. but pierre like also knew americans Mm -hmm. and he was like there's a bunch of fucking new money in that country (laughs) like we can do this and he knew that the diamond would be like a major get for some rich young american he knew he just had to find the right one now the hope diamond is truly like a magnificent stone it's mm-hmm. I mean it is it's impressive mm-hmm. but finding an equally magnificent owner was proving to be a little tough for the Cartiers not every like Richie Rich had the means to purchase the stone mm-hmm. the fanaticism for diamonds to want a big blue one or the guts to disregard the curse because again because it's been in the New York Times and in yeah. the New York times and DC and London papers it's spreading everywhere like people know about the curse
1: yeah this is the if you buy this you will die diamond
0: yes but Pierre and his- brothers were like we think that we can do this they knew that they could find the right heiress who wouldn't be able to resist the thought of like parading the hope diamond in front of her friends Mm -hmm. and they finally found one in a woman named evelyn walsh mclean okay So Evelyn Walsh McLean was born in Leadville, Colorado. She was, hey, I've been there. (laughs) Shout out to Leadville, Colorado. She was born the daughter of a former school teacher and an Irish immigrant prospector. Mm. Her father, Thomas Walsh, discovered a literal gold mine and became, I think, like almost overnight, a multimillionaire.
1: Yeah. I mean, Leadville was one of those places where you would do that.
0: Yeah, I have no idea what that town is like now. Uh, The only thing... I mean, it's a cool little,
1: cute little mining town way up in the mountains of Colorado. I believe it's the highest elevation city. I mean, Mm -hmm. by city, I think it's, you know, 10,000 people. But it's at something like 10,000 feet.
0: Whoa, okay. Thomas Walsh finds this gold mine, becomes a multimillionaire, and there we go. Now they're richy rich. When she was 14, Evelyn moved to Paris to study singing which if that is not the most fucking heiress (laughs) socialite thing to do like i don't even know so she goes there to study singing but she's like study singing i don't want to do that and instead she starts spending like she colors her hair Mm -hmm. she fucking drinks all the time (laughs) she starts like rouging her cheeks which is what the sex workers in paris were doing like scandal 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 so she sounds like a good time yeah Somehow in the midst of all of this, she meets and marries Edward Ned Beale McLean. And he was heir to the Washington Post and the Cincinnati Inquirer publishing fortune. Oh, okay. He was also three years her junior. So oh. get it, Evelyn. <laughs> um, and there were quotes that were saying that the two of them had more money than cents. <laughs> I mean, it's probably true. <laughs> they were 22 and 19 when they got yeah. married. Yeah. So they were probably like, whoo. Like party, 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 you know, just bottles of champagne and, you know, fucking dollar bills everywhere. (laughs) Cartier knew about the McLeans and he knew that Evelyn had a weakness for jewels. Uh, This is a quote from her. She said, it is no use to anyone to chide me for loving jewels. I cannot help it. If I have a passion for them, they make me feel comfortable and even happy. The truth is when I neglect to wear jewels, astute members of my family call in doctors because it is a sign I am becoming ill End quote, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean,
1: yeah, it's just a different it's it's a different life than I'm
0: just <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I get it. My family knows that I'm falling ill when I take a nap and her family, like I, I relate. And her family knows uh, when she's left her diamonds behind that they're, you know, she's coming down with something. Okay. <laughs> so Pierre knew the McLeans as he'd met them in Paris when they were on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And two years later, the couple returned to Paris and Pierre was like, hey, do you have time to like meet up? And we can just like chat about some like diamonds and stuff. <laughs> um, and of course they were like, fucking right. Right. We can so pierre knew that evelyn and ned had a very much had this like bigger is better mentality yeah i think probably when it came to everything in general and specifically when it came to jules and he was sure that they'd bite at the chance to own the hope diamond yeah so pierre goes to see them in their hotel room and i got to say this next bit it's it's a good little bit of showmanship he places <laughs> this very like mysterious wax sealed package on the table and begins to tell the story of the hope diamonds like mysterious history
1: mm. it's before mm-hmm.
0: they've even seen it okay also it should be noted that pierre was at this time totally obsessed with a book called the moonstone by somebody named wilkie collins yep i've read and- it You've read it? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to give us a little synopsis? No, because are- I don't remember it that well. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, then I will continue with the story that I'd written. Okay. So... <laughs> To refresh your memory, uh, Moonstone is a story about a large yellow diamond that had formed the eye of an idol of a Hindu deity in a yeah. temple in India, and the diamond embodied like the power of the god, right? Yeah. This next bit was written too well in the Great Course Daily article, so I just lifted it and I'm going to read it to you now. It says, quote, There it rested until it was looted by a Muslim conqueror and taken to his treasury. Then years later, British colonial soldiers looted the treasury in battle, taking the diamond back to to England. There, tragedy, murder, kidnapping, and insanity followed the possession of the ill-gotten gem. The god had cursed the stone. An evil force would emanate rays from the stone and strike misfortune upon all who owned it until the gem was properly returned to the deity back in India. Finally, Indian Hindu priests retrieved the diamond and brought it back home. The story by Collins was a cautionary tale about divine or supernatural payback for the immorality of colonialism.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I remember. Yeah. Some of that.
0: So, which is also cool that like Wilkie Collins was like, Oh, um, we need to be fucking careful about this shit. So, here's can I just
1: interject though? Aside yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. that the reason I've read that story of the moonstone is known as like one of the big influences on HP Lovecraft. But knowing uh, knowing our good friend Howard, I think he took maybe the wrong message from it. right.
0: He was probably like Fucking right! Yeah, let's like colonize s- that shit. <laughs> let's colonize that shit and steal stuff for creepy yeah. things to happen, and then like lightning flashes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so in that hotel room, Pierre cobbles together elements from the Moonstone story along with some of the actual historical facts about the previous owners of the jewel. Mm-hmm. So he just sort of like transposes. Yeah. You know, he's he's weaving a tale. He's weaving a tale, and God, I love a good story teller. So when Pierre finally shows them the diamond, Evelyn and Ned were like, I mean, frothing at the mouth. You know what I mean? Like they were just like, oh my God, yes. But for some reason they didn't buy the stone Mm -hmm. and they left that meeting empty handed. Pierre was like, you know, like fuck, but he was undeterred. He knew that he could get the McLeans to bite. He just had to dangle the bait in the right way. Yeah. So then he ships the gemstone to the U.S., He changes the setting to showcase the blue diamond more prominently. I believe that is when the white diamonds, the 16 white diamonds were added. Okay. And he shows it to Evelyn again. Evelyn was like, I'm like, I love this diamond, but I'm still on the fence about it. So Pierre did the only thing that he could do. He told Evelyn, you know what? Why don't you take it home with you for a mm. couple of days and see, see how, see if it grows on you. Mm. Pierre knew that once the diamond was in Evelyn's possession, like she there was no way she was going to return it. I think right. there one of the articles said she was used to getting, not giving. Mm.
1: So- <laughs> yeah, that's that's
0: some good uh psychological understanding on this part. Yeah. yeah right that like yeah and that, like once she had it she wasn't gonna be like this has been nice what a lovely trinket and like yeah. send it back so everyone took the diamond home and she put it on her dresser this is a quote from her autobiography she says for hours that jewel stared at me and at some time during the night i began to really want the thing then i put <laughs> the chain around my neck and hooked my life to its destiny for good or evil <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: i mean it's easy to be like real judgy but if Someone came to me with like some cursed shit that was like twenty dollars. I would one hundred percent buy it
0: <laughs> <laughs> for twenty dollars. I mean, I, I,
1: mean I, I mean that's like my version of like what I could afford for some cursed shit.
0: I am not so much laughing at her because she was enticed by the diamond. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big fucking diamond. Like, yeah, I, 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 I would be hard pressed. To find anybody who didn't like jewelry who would be like, eh, about the Hope Diamond. Right. My thing is that she's like, and I hooked my life to its destiny for <laughs> good or evil. Like, you know, oh, she's she, like- Oh, well, she's playing she's, into the show. Yeah. too. Yeah. Yes. She, I can just see her like dictating this story to somebody like on a fainting couch and they're like- <laughs> right. You know, I've got to, yeah, I've got to go we've finish heard dinner. It,
1: Evelyn. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we know Evelyn. The very next day, the McLean sent word that they would in fact buy the diamond. The price was $180,000. That's about 5 million today. Wow. And Cartier was like, cool. That's the price tag. And your first installment it has to be $40,000. Okay. For some reason, the McLeans, like they got the bill. Yeah. The diamond, but they dragged their feet in paying for it because well, they like getting that giving, and that's I mean, and that is like that is that's a question is whether they were like, Oh, is this not like a gift, or if they were like, Yeah, no, no, we're, yeah, but you know, had to go to the families and be like, So we bought this fuck ton diamond, um, by and the now way, <laughs> that's by the way, cursed, you know, can we have 40 grand for it, like money, please, um. Who knows? But they, they dragged their feet in paying for it. And Cartier finally had to file suit for Mm. payment. Evelyn eventually kept the stone, but not before having it blessed in church. Um, Mm. I'm going to come back to the the blessing in just a sec. But after that, Cartier sort of as a jewelry house came to the decision that they, this is hilarious to me, not that they would stop dealing in large jewels, but that they would at all costs avoid legal fees. Mm. So they were like, (laughs) I mean, we're still going to, we're still going to get big jewels for the Richie Riches, but like payment first, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Evelyn is like, okay, I'm going to take the diamond, but I want to have it blessed in church. Um, Remember good old May Yohi that I mentioned earlier, the American concert singer, wife of Lord Francis Hope. She publicly warned Evelyn. From keeping the diamond Like she put out A newspaper article That was like Do not take this diamond It is cursed Probably published By the
1: New York Times
0: (laughs) Probably published By the New York Times But Evelyn was like But it's pretty So (laughs) she kept it And she took the thing To church Had it blessed By like a Monsignor And the story goes That as the diamond Sat waiting to be blessed It was like sitting On this gorgeous Velvet cushion And like rays of light Were hitting it And that as it was Waiting to be blessed Lightning flashed And thunder shook The building Evelyn took that as a good sign. <laughs> I mean confirmation bias. You see what you want <laughs> Confirmation <laughs> bias at its best. Uh she said, ever since that day I've worn my diamond as a charm. Now once the diamond was firmly in the hands of the McLeans, the sale of the diamond made Cartier a household name. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like they were, you know, known among like the upper crust and the elite, but with the sale of the Hope Diamond, like everybody yeah. fucking knew who Cartier was. And even though the jewelers did lose money on the sale with those pesky legal fees, they more than made up for it with the free advertising the diamond brought them. So not so much cursed for them, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they also were real hot potato with it. I mean, they were like, you know. (laughs) Get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah, get rid of it. So, (laughs) So Cartier gets rid of the diamond and is like, okay, we're doing pretty good. Evelyn got as much mileage out of that stone as she could. She tied the diamond around the neck of her dog, a Great Dane named Mike.
1: It's just like <laughs> the height of white
0: privilege. The height <laughs> of like rich white privilege is like here's this massive stone, and like doesn't it look sweet on my dog? Although I would, I will say that Donia would look fucking tight <laughs> with a blue diamond around her neck. Bowie uh, would just
1: be confused and try and get out of it,
0: like trying to like like bite it. <laughs> yeah. um, somebody had said, I think it was like 2003, a reporter. I don't remember from what publication, but he was allowed to hold the hope diamond. And he was like, it is like sort of unnaturally heavy and cold for what it is. Yeah. We all know it.
1: In haunted house lore, what cold spots mean.
0: Right. Yeah, so do with that information what you will. But so, like I said, so she ties the diamond around the neck of her dog, Mike. She would hold, like, fancy garden parties where she would essentially turn the diamond into an Easter egg. Like, she would hide it in the bushes and encourage her guests to find the hope. (sighs) I mean...
1: She sounds like a pill. To me. She
0: sounds like a fucking pill. Yeah. yeah. She sounds like a, she sounds like a dingbat. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. um, look, I don't like to call people names, but she sounds like a fucking dingbat. Um, so she would hide it in the bushes. She paraded it around at like extravagant parties that she attended. She just was like, look at my diamond, look at my diamond. Mm-hmm. Now, Evelyn said that she didn't believe in the curse, but she did did stumble into a fair amount of misfortune later on in her life. Uh, Ned, her husband, ran off with another woman, Mm. and he eventually ended up in a mental institution. Her son was killed in a car accident when he was nine. Um, Her daughter died of a drug overdose. There are also sources that say that she died by suicide. The daughter? The daughter. And the family paper, The Washington Post, went bankrupt. Mm. So... It's. it's a f- I mean, it, this is the interesting thing is that like, that's a fair amount of misfortune for somebody, but also not an uncommon amount of misfortune for somebody during that time. Right. You know, like in the early part of, of the 1900s, like it sucks, but it's, it's, it's a little common. Yeah, so you results know? of the blessing
1: inconclusive.
0: Precisely. During the Depression, Evelyn was actually forced to pawn the diamond. Dude, um, to pawn it, okay. Yeah. She only got, sorry, (laughs) I came across a number and my brain was like, cannot compute. Um, (laughs) She only got $37,500 for it. Mm. Remember they bought it for a hundred thousand and she used the money to save her house from foreclosure. Mm. Um, there are also stories that she pawned the stone in 1932 to hire oh, to hire a private investigator to track down the kidnappers of the Lindbergh baby. Mm. And with the stipulation that any remaining money be used for ransom, of course, if you know the story of the Lindbergh yeah. baby, the money was not needed and she yeah. got the diamond back. Scotty, can you remind me of how the Lindbergh baby story ended? Like baby disappears. I. Um, and then did they find the remains and they were I like, think,
1: oops. I want to say, I think we should do the Lindbergh baby maybe at some point on the show. But yeah, if I'm remembering correctly... I think they found the remains on, like, a farm in New Jersey or something. Right. But, like, but I I could be totally misremembering that.
0: And I'm it's... trying to remember. Sorry. Are you okay? Okay. Well, for Don't... a minute I thought the Curse
1: of the Hope Diamond was coming for you.
0: <laughs> Donya hates garbage trucks trucks like with trailers and whatever so she hears them and she like perked up Pablo when uh when we were in Denver this weekend she would like bark at stuff and Pablo was like your dog has real crew cut energy and I laughed so hard just the thought of her like standing in the yard like looking at everybody like what do you do get back in your homes
1: I think I'm gonna have Um, to leave that on (laughs) (laughs) awesome
0: <laughs> oh my goodness okay but back to the Lindbergh baby it wasn't that like the bait like they couldn't find the baby and that like years later the remains were found right it was like I like, feel the Lindberghs. like it was
1: I feel like it was within that time frame
0: okay okay that's again
1: completely just like half remembering something I probably read 10 years ago but okay like, that's
0: kind of my memory. okay We'll fact check it. When we, event, when we eventually do our fact check episode, we'll put that in there. Okay. Yeah. So she gets the diamond back. I think there was also, there may have been some stories too about that she also pawned it to save the Washington Post. Uh, mm. She Apparently she was just pawning that diamond all over the place. So she's pawning it, getting it back, pawning it, getting it back. Getting it back, yeah. pawning it. Yeah. There's also stories of like when she pawned it to save her house from foreclosure, she rode that when she went to go get it back, She rode the train from Washington to New York by herself. Like she didn't take any bodyguards. Mm. She didn't take anybody with her. She went to the pawn shop, got the hope diamond and I guess like a bunch of other big stones and literally just shoved them in her bra. And then she was like running back to the train station. And she was like, I was certain that the jewels would tumble from my bosom. And I was like, (laughs) lady for fuck's sake. Okay. (laughs)
1: Again,
0: (laughs) yeah, ding that. Evelyn would go on to use the diamond for charity later on in her life. She would allow people like people could buy a raffle ticket to like look at it or hold it. She would, I don't know. I don't know why this creeps me the F out. She would lend the Hope Diamond to brides as they're something blue. Ooh. Uh, yeah, right, You're just like, there's something weird. To like yeah. yeah. There's something weird about that. Yeah. That I don't know, just leaves me with some real like ugh, vibes in her autobiography that I've quoted from here a couple of times. She wondered if like she, she in her, like she alternates in her biography between being like, I don't believe in the curse. But then she also says that she wondered if the curse was some sort of payback for the frivolous way that she'd spent her wealth. I mean, you know. (laughs) Well, and I mean, like, you have to think, yeah, she must have been frivolous with it to have had to upon the jewel several times yeah you know to like save her house from foreclosure and all of that stuff i mean to be fair that happened to a lot of people
1: during the depression i mean no uh,
0: uh-uh. have... i'm not hearing it <laughs> this is only about evelyn no you're right
1: you're right yeah. i mean they didn't have a hope diamond upon but yeah a lot of people were living living large in the 20s and then yeah
0: kind of that's one of my right after that yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in Cinderella Man. Again, you know, I love an uplifting sports movie. Mm-hmm. And I I do I love Cinderella, man. I love that movie so much, but that's one of my, it's right at the beginning. Like he gets home from a fight and he's at their like lovely little home and it like pans across the dresser and then it shifts and it shows like the silver frames, like pictures in the silver frames, like mm. her combs and the mirror and all that stuff. And then it fades into their like little teeny tiny apartment in a tenement mm-hmm. and like I the frame, that, yeah. the frame is gone, but like the picture is still there. It's a nice little, it's a nice way of jumping forward in time. Yeah. Who directed that, that was Rob Howard Ron How- Howard I called him Rob Ron Howard <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Howard. Um, Okay. So yeah. So she's like maybe I was cursed. Maybe it was because of the frivolous way that I'd spent my money. In 1947, Evelyn dies and her estate sold the Hope Diamond to Harry Winston. I saw that that it was like her estate. I also saw that it was her other children who, I don't know, maybe they were like, get this fucking diamond (laughs) out of our sight. So they sold it to Harry Winston. Harry Winston is also a big name in jewelry. Mm -hmm. Harry Winston, tell me all about it. Ten years later, the diamond makes its way to the Smithsonian. The diamond retained its Cartier setting along with the 16 white diamonds surrounding it. The whole thing is set in platinum. Interesting thing about this, when the diamond makes its way to the Smithsonian. It's in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's the height of the Cold War. The Smithsonian Mm -hmm. had, like, people had learned that the Hope Diamond was going to go to the Smithsonian, and they got all sorts of letters about how, like, it's the height of the Cold War. You're, like, playing with fire like why would you put our country at risk
1: (laughs) because of the curse
0: because of the curse wow so yeah so this was like this was not like no joke people were people were like this diamond is fucking cursed
1: i mean it it was in the new york times so you know
0: facts (laughs) so smithsonian gets it is the smithsonian cursed now Mm -hmm. curator jeff post says quote since the arrival of the hope diamond the national gem collection has grown steadily in size and stature and is today considered by many to be the finest public display of gems in the world for the smithsonian the hope diamond has obviously been a source of good luck After the Smithsonian got the Hope Diamond, the 423-carat Logan Sapphire, the Napoleon Necklace, the 31-carat Blue Heart Diamond, the 68-carat Victoria Transville Diamond, and Mm. many more have been donated. So the Smithsonian got the Hope Diamond and that... There she goes. Now she's going, now she's coming in with her, her crew cut energy. So the Smith, the Smithsonian got the hope diamond and that inspired all of these other people to be like, well, here's my massive jewels. So, I mean, yeah, like post is kind of right. Like it has, it's been a good luck charm. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. The Hope Diamond now resides in a shrine in the Harry Winston Gallery, and it has been seen by millions of visitors every year, including me. I have seen the Hope Diamond.
1: I feel like I might have, too, when we went to the Smithsonian when I was a kid. But I, Hmm. you know, I kind of vaguely remember it.
0: It is. okay. so funny story about the Hope Diamond. I've mentioned this trip in other episodes of the podcast. Me and my dad and my brothers did a trip to D.C. and Boston Mm -hmm. uh, about... 10, 11 years ago. I got mono in Washington, D.C. I'm just saying some, like, I know I did, but it's- Cursed. Cursed, (laughs) cursed. So I was like, I want to go see the Hope Diamond. So we went to go look at it. And the thing is, is that it's in this like glass, when we saw it, it was in this like glass case thing it's got like bulletproof glass around it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the the case that it's in rotates. So people can get all like 360 degrees all the way around it and yeah. it'll turn so you can get a good look at it. Well, while we were there, this story is like in Ampuero family lore. <laughs> um, While we're all sitting there looking at it, there is a couple, a guy with a camera and a very pretty woman. And she is just a Following the fucking diamond around (laughs) in a circle and like posing with it. And she's like posing and the guy's like, beautiful, beautiful. One more, one more with your hair over. Now throw your hair back. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. And he's like doing all this stuff and they're not letting anybody see the fucking diamond. Yeah. Okay. Like- nobody can see it because she's standing right in front of it well finally my oldest brother just gets fed up and just like starts (laughs) my middle brother was like it was like an eclipse like the next thing i saw (laughs) i just saw your your massive head just come right (laughs) and that, like he completely encroached on the woman like she was sitting there posing and my brother got like next to her he got he got like cheek to cheek with her and she finally like ducked out of the way and was like okay sorry, but (laughs) my that's, oldest brother was like what kind of asshole that's <laughs> like, perfect <laughs> it was incredible and i laugh so hard to think of the series of photos of my <laughs> brother's head just coming in and she you know she it took her a second to notice so she's like smiling and posing and then you just see her like look. To the <laughs>
1: side. yeah i'd love to see those end up on Instagram.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. Like I would pay money to see those photos because she, she just imagine your typical, I mean, I think this was kind of technically a little before Instagram, but just imagine your typical Instagram influencer. That's what it sounds like. Right. Ruining literally dozens of people's experience so that she could get a stupid picture with the Hope Diamond. And I think it was something, too, that, like, I want to say that, like, they were photographing with Flash, and I was just like, all of this is pointless. Yeah. But- so that's my funny story about the <laughs> about the Hope Diamond. One one last thing before I finish. The diamond was sent, the Hope Diamond was sent by Harry Winston to the Smithsonian on November 10th, 1958 via US Mail. Okay. It was sent in a plain box wrapped in brown paper via registered mail. It was insured for $1 million at the cost of $145.29. $2.44 of that was for postage. And it's like written. The thing is covered in stamps. (laughs) <laughs> and it's written postage two forty four, and then the cost of the insurance is marked on there as well. The plain brown paper package itself now sits on display at the National Postal Museum—a little, a little, oh. a little uh, you know, bit of of evidence of the trust that Harry Winston put in the U.S. Postal Service.
1: Oh, that's cool. Somehow, package- like this is probably just because I'm, you know, getting into my forties, but I'm like, ooh, U.S. Postal Museum—I'd like
0: to see that. What <laughs> Postal? Museum. No, but fucking so would I. Because yeah. you know that they're not like, here's a letter. You know that there's like it's here's the like- last letter, you know, Kennedy wrote and right, cool exactly. like that. it's gonna be all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, me too. We should go to DC. Yeah, yeah. Road trip. <laughs> um, road trip. Uh okay. So the package itself was delivered by a postman named James Todd. He's the one who like picked the package up and delivered it to the Smithsonian.
1: Yeah.
0: In the months after he made that significant delivery, Todd's wife died. Mm. His leg was crushed. Mm. His dog died, mm. and his house burned down. Holy shit! Mm-hmm. Of his run of bad luck, Todd said, "Quote: I don't believe in any of that stuff. Perhaps I'm actually having good luck. Thank God, all four children were outside instead of in those rooms. If the hex is supposed to affect the owners, then the public should be having the bad luck." Mm. And that is the dark and twisty tale of the curse of the Hope Diamond. Wow, that's that's awesome. Like I've heard
1: obviously I've heard of the Hope Diamond and I yeah. I've heard that it was cursed, but that's yep. crazy.
0: Yeah. but my thing i think too is that it was like it was all old stuff you know it was like louis and marie antoinette mm-hmm. it was you know yeah people being like attacked by dogs and you know torn apart by a mob and all that stuff but the evelyn mclean and the mail carrier
1: the mail carrier to me is the weirdest yeah like that's that's definitely if there's anything that bumps it up the believability scale for me it's that dude
0: yeah, what would you put the curse of the hope diamond at on our I mean, weirdest thing believability scale? I'd say uh at least a four or five. I think I'd put it there too. Yeah. If we have any artists who'd be interested in sketching out our weirdest thing believability I scale, I really I really do want to make that into a t-shirt. It's me like... <laughs> too. Me too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so there we go. Cursed, not cursed, it's a big blue stone. And if yeah. you're ever at the Smithsonian,
1: take a look at it. I'm almost like 90% positive. I saw it. Cause the way you described it on the pedestal that rotates, like that's yeah. what I remember of it. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We went to go look through the entire, and like the, again, the hope diamond is impressive, but it is, it's, it's a little like seeing any, I imagine it's similar to seeing the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. Like it's always surrounded by people. It's hard to get a really good look at yeah. it, but they have a whole, you know, wing of jewels. And I remember I stopped and I stared at this fucking set. For a good long while. It was a it was a necklace and I believe earrings of I think the term is cabochon emeralds. So mm. they're they're stones that haven't been faceted, they've been polished. Mm. So they're smooth surface. And they are if I can find a picture of a cabochon emerald, I'll post it in the stories for social media. I won't post it in the post for the story. But if I married an oil baron and he was like, let's put something on you, I'd be like um this piece from the smithsonian please and thank you yeah so again if we have any people who would like to donate to our (laughs) 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 to our emerald fund to i'm sorry to my emerald fund (laughs) i was gonna say i won't i won't be sharing with scotty
1: One well, just real quick, just want to give a shout out to the Smithsonian. If you guys have never been to the Smithsonian and you're ever in D.C., it's absolutely worth checking out. My favorite, of course, being me, is the Air and Space Museum. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, Air and Space is super cool. One of the pairs of ruby slippers that Judy Garland wore, mm-hmm. that, like that whole section to me
1: is super cool. They I um, don't know if they still do. They had for a long time a bunch of Star Wars stuff. Oh, yeah. Like the models for the adats and things like
0: that. Yeah. They had, when I was there, I'm pretty sure it was at the Smithsonian, they had like a presidential section. And I know that there was a whole thing about Abe Lincoln and they had the cast of his, like his fist. Yes. Yeah. And you could go and put your fist in it. The man's hands were like the size of a skillet. Yeah. I Huge. mean,
1: I, I went to that. I want to say in my 20s and like, you know me, I'm six foot four. I'm a big dude.
0: Yes. And
1: I remember having the same thing because like my hand went into the thing and it was like bigger than my hand.
0: Oh yeah. No, mine. It looked like I put my hand to it and it looked like a ham hock. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> looked like a fucking christmas ham yeah it was insane yeah that the smithsonian is a fantastic museum and if you're into museums dc is just a great museum town
1: mm-hmm. yeah it really is yeah. yeah okay shall we move on yes all right well so this is gonna be my last week of baseball stuff Okay. Um, So before I get into my story, I do want to just talk about, because it has come up, you know, as everyone should know at this point, I'm a Cleveland Indians fan. I've been my whole life. Well, I'm sorry, what?
0: No, just kidding.
1: (laughs) But just uh, a little update, if you guys haven't seen on the news, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how they were planning to change the name, but the name hadn't been announced. Wasn't clear if it was going to be next season or the season after. Well, in the meantime, they have announced the name change. And after the end of this, 2021 season they are now going to be the cleveland guardians
0: yes i i feel fine about the name mm-hmm. it took me how, a minute. how do you feel well so it took me a minute because at
1: first i was just like guardians what the fuck does that have to do with anything and, right. I, and my thought was like well they're just trying to pick a name that sounds kind of like indians So that they can sort of keep the like font and, you know, Uh which I think was part of their decision, whether they outright say that or not. But then Mm -hmm. when we get into the history of where that name comes from is actually kind of interesting. So there's this bridge. It's actually, I believe it's called the Hope Memorial Bridge. Mm. Um, and i think it's like named after bob hope's son or something i don't remember okay. or his father or something um but it's a famous bridge in cleveland it goes right by progressive field which is where the indians play mm-hmm. and it's got these statues eight statues kind of lining the bridge called the guardians of traffic and they're very like art deco but also mm-hmm. kind of greco roman looking
0: mm-hmm. they're art Greco. art greco
1: <laughs> well done <laughs> um (laughs) um, and i remember like whenever we would go to visit cleveland when i was a kid i remember that bridge and i remember those statues but i didn't know what they were called or anything like that but i guess they're just like a big cleveland landmark
0: is there like what's the sort of like mythology around them or is there any? Is there, Were they just like, this will look cool?
1: So, you know, Cleveland, like all those Rust Belt cities, is really associated with the auto industry. Yes. Um, and like Akron, which is just south of Cleveland, is uh, it's called Rubber City. And that's because it was like where all the tires were made. So this Guardians of Traffic thing, I think, it's just sort of honoring the history of like transportation. So it's like each of these guardians is holding a different thing. Like one is holding like a covered wagon, one is holding a train, you know, things like that. Okay. Okay. Um. So and you know, in their front, it's Art Deco. I I don't remember the year that that bridge and those statues went up, but I want to say it was like the twenties or thirties or something. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's tied looking at the style. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like, I still like, I have kind of come around to the name. I do not like the logo. It's an objectively stupid looking logo. (laughs) And that seems to be the general consensus of everybody is that it's a stupid looking logo. Maybe they can go back to the drawing board. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll keep it for a couple years, and then they'll phase it into something. They'll redesign it somehow. I like the idea around the logo. I just think the actual design is not very good. Yeah. It's been interesting watching the fan reaction. Yeah. Um, And I got to say somewhat, and I'm only getting this from like reading social media, reading Cleveland Mm -hmm. media, reading comment sections on like articles from Cleveland.com, things like that. Right. It's definitely a mixed reaction to the name, but it seems like the mixed reaction is not so much around, like, I wish they hadn't have changed the name as Mm -hmm. much as, like, really, did they have to go with that name? some people are really behind it and a lot of people are still like oh i wish they'd gone with the cleveland rocks or with the cleveland spiders or the cleveland right. naps oh by the way to fact check myself when uh-huh. you would ask me where the name cleveland naps comes from i looked it up it was named after one of their players a guy named nap lejo so
0: oh, interesting that's okay. where the
1: name cleveland naps came that's from. where it comes from
0: and is it didn't like the sheriff of fucking cleveland come out with this? the, no, stupid was the ad- sheriff of that? some
1: other fucking place that has nothing to do with cleveland i mean might have been in Ohio. The the negative reaction against changing the name, mm-hmm. which has been going on since it was announced. Mm-hmm. Like the more you look into it, I don't even think it's necessarily like people with deep ties to like Cleveland fandom. It's just mm-hmm. a bunch of right wingers. It's just all the same fucking people bitching about cancel culture and everything. So it's just like their new hobby horse. And like Donald Trump released a statement. Oh
0: my God. Uh... Anyway, yeah. So but, shut up. Oh, just shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up and go about the rest of your life. <laughs> like you don't have to fucking say something about everything. Like I can't, I I I'm so I like I I'm I'm turning into Madeline Kahn from Clue. I mean you're like, literally so- doing
1: it with your hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh
0: my god.
1: But like I said, I mean, I think there are definitely there's a contingent of Cleveland fans who are like, Oh, we, you know, we really like the Indians, we grew up with it. You know, that was the name. And there's definitely a contingent of people being like, Well, I don't know, my wife is Native American and she doesn't think it's offensive, you know. Cool,
0: good for her, dude.
1: Yeah, so it's like, like have
0: your wife right in, but like right? you don't get to, and yeah. also just this thing of like, well, you know, I've grown up with that. I used to grow up slathering baby oil on myself and frying myself to a crisp during the summer like you move on
1: right well i think that like i said there's a contingent of the fans that are like that but i i feel like it's the minority it seems like everyone's kind of gotten used to the idea that the name was going to change yeah and the only like arguments about it now is just was this the right name
0: right which is i think a fine argument to have no i mean i i will say like i still You know, they said they picked the
1: Cleveland Guardians and they're keeping kind of a similar, they're keeping the team colors, the sort of navy blue, red and white colors. Mm -hmm. The font on the uniforms that used to say Indians and now is going to say Guardians is the same. They've sort of redesigned the C, like there's the classic Cleveland C on the baseball cap. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going to put mine on right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, There
1: we go. They've redesigned the C to be more like diamond shaped. And like, I actually think the C looks pretty cool. So once I inevitably get my Cleveland Guardians merch, Mm -hmm. probably November, whenever they start selling it, you know, I'll get the C because I do not like the logo, but you know, if it was up to me, I would have gone for the Cleveland rocks or Cleveland rock starts or something. I think their, their idea with this was they wanted to keep a certain amount of continuity with the original team name and the original like design. And I feel like if you're going to change it, change it, you know, like rebrand yourselves. You know, I think to me, it feels like a. Little bit of a missed opportunity. That said, I'm happy with the Guardians. I would have been happy with the Cleveland Spiders or the Cleveland Rocks or the Cleveland Naps. I'm just glad they changed the name yeah yeah so this is the last season of the cleveland indians unfortunately it's not going to be one of their best seasons Uh (laughs) um but (laughs) it's okay
0: but that's all right you know go out with i don't know i I don't know baseball well enough (laughs) go out with a little bit of a whimper but
1: yeah yeah. so i'm going to start with a little bit of a cold open uh with this week Uh, Okay. And uh, so I'm actually going to start off talking about a guy named Shohei Otani. Okay. And if you guys are baseball fans, you probably know this name. He is currently 27 years old.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's a Japanese pitcher, currently playing with the Anaheim Angels, but he, he started off his career playing for the Hokkaido Nipponha Fighters. Mm. Um, but now he's playing for the Angels. He's a pitcher. His current ERA, so if you remember, that's earned run average, is right. three. Point five eight. that's as of july 26th and if you remember when i was talking about eras you know anything under a four is generally considered a good era so that's that's like a good solid era like not you know it's not necessarily going to light the world on fire era but it's like a good solid era but here's why people are talking about shohei okay not only does he have a pitching era of 3.58 his batting average is 271. He's hit 82 career home runs, and he's got 2021 season leading 35 home runs for the season. So he's the home run leader of the season. Wow. He's also had a total 223 career RBIs. So if you remember when I, we were talking about Babe Ruth mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, the double duty player, the pitcher uh-huh. slash batter is just something that is exceedingly rare. Right. And so this is why they're talking about Shohei as being a a once-in-a-century player. Mm. And who are are they comparing him to? Of course, they're comparing him to Babe Ruth. Mm -hmm. So here's from an article from the Washington Post written by a guy named Kevin B. Blackestone. While he's, he's talking about how Shohei is being... Compared to the babe. But then he starts talking about a guy named Ted Radcliffe. Ted Radcliffe was actually called double duty by a writer, a famous writer named Damon Runyon. So this is a quote from the article. It says During a 1932 doubleheader that pitted Radcliffe's Pittsburgh Crawfords against the New York Black Yankees at Yankee Stadium, Runyon witnessed Radcliffe hit a grand slam and then catch Satchel Page's shutout in the twilight Night opener, only to turn around and throw a shutout of his own in the second game. Blackstone goes on to say the lore of double duty should be reincarnated with the rise of Shohei Ohtani, baseball's latest 2A star. But to hear most tell it, the Los Angeles Angels' sometimes starting pitcher and other times outfielder evokes memories of Babe Ruth, who pitched and played the outfield before settling in as an everyday field player for his slugging. Indeed, Sports Illustrated anointed Otani a -a once-in-a-century player. Mm -hmm. He continues, That Otani would be compared reflexively by most of us in the media to Ruth reminds us how baked in the continued delegitimization of Negro Leaguers' accomplishments is. Mm -hmm. An an asterisk still hovers over their achievements— Well, none does for white players, who also played only among themselves and not against all the best players of their time. And white baseball players, unlike their black peers, segregated themselves by choice and decree. Negro League ballplayers continue to deserve better. um so like i said you know everyone's comparing shohei otani to babe ruth when really you could compare him to Ted radcliffe Mm -hmm. well the same thing goes like if you look up any list of the greatest pitchers of all time and i did this today as an experiment i got on google Mm -hmm. and i just put in greatest pitchers of all time you know how google puts that bar across the top of like Uh search options so i was getting people like cy young walter johnson sandy koufax nolan ryan roger clemens even babe ruth Mm -hmm. but you know who didn't show up on that list was Hmm. one of the greatest pitchers of all time a guy named satchel page so this is the story of the negro leagues and satchel page
0: let's do it
1: so my sources for this are wikipedia an article called bud fowler it's from the society of american baseball research again uh, which i cited last week yes Uh, the writer of that was a guy named Brian McKenna. Also from the Society of American Baseball Research was the page Satchel Paige by Larry (laughs) Ty. A YouTube video on Satchel Paige from a guy named Dwayne Harris. This was from 2011. Another YouTube video, Satchel Paige, is the greatest American folk hero. That's from February of this year. And then the article that I just cited, which is Shohei Otani's double duty feats are a reminder. The Negro Leagues are still overlooked by Mm. Kevin Blackestone from the Washington Post July 12th of this year. Mm, okay okay so like you went back to the beginning of time with yours i'm gonna go Mm -hmm. back to the beginning of time with mine
0: (laughs) fantastic
1: so let's talk about the evolution of the sport of baseball and i'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this and by the way this entire story that i'm doing this is very much the cliff's notes of both the negro leagues and satchel page yeah man so and like like i said during yours like there's big chunks that i'm just skipping through because as doing the research i was like i don't want to narrate every single fucking game you know, right, right. We're right, talking right. about every single like team in the Negro Leagues. It's just right. too much. It's a huge story. But if you're interested, I would say the best source on this is just go watch the Ken Burns baseball documentary. He spends a lot of time
0: on the Negro Leagues. Oh, right. I forget that he's got. Can we yeah. just also say sidebar? Because, you know, and no, no disrespect, because I mean, I enjoy a Ken's Burn documentary as much as the next person, but he's a little weird looking, right? <laughs> he's, he's a little weird looking. He's <laughs> he's a little weird looking like he, i he, feel like he, he needs to he needs to tone down whatever whatever shade he's using on his hair he always, it's a weird look he yeah. always feels
1: to me like he looks <laughs> like someone who played synth and like a new wave band in 1982 and has just like not quite let go of the, the style right thing. when
0: you walk into his apartment it's a lot of black leather and chrome yeah <laughs> you're like what is this yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know he's a great documentarian and his baseball One, documentary is yeah. i mean it's multi-episodes it. it's like goes forever mm-hmm. um but it is fucking fast if you're a baseball fan it's fucking great so, his natural
0: parks episode or document series what the hell is i i don't know that he's done anything that's been not great I mean, they're always epic. They're always but I I appreciate it. Like they're
1: always like nineteen hours or something, but like they're (laughs) worth if if you're into the subject, they're worth it.
0: Yeah. Fantastic.
1: Okay. Very cool. Okay. So back to the beginning of baseball. <laughs> so <laughs> it it evolved as a sport out of I mean there's like some questions about exactly where it evolved but generally it's sort of thought that it evolved out of a game called rounders which was okay. a popular bat and ball game played in the British Isles Okay. The first mention of baseball comes in a British publication called A Little Pretty Pocket Book from 1744. Okay, so, Goes back a minute. The sport quickly became very popular in North America, like, you know, mm-hmm. in the colonies. And by 1830, it had spread all across the country. But it was still this like uncodified game. And there were like all these different regional variations of it that were like kind of barely the same game. So you had things like the Massachusetts game, you had Philadelphia okay. town ball, <laughs> like things okay. like that. Um,
0: is 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 baseball
1: at all like cricket i think rounders if i understand rounders kind of evolved out of cricket and the baseball kind of evolved out of rounders i think Mm -hmm. rounders is sort of like the the lower class kind of neighborhood game like neighborhood version of cricket that people would play
0: okay
1: now i've tried to watch cricket and it is weird if you're a baseball fan and you don't really understand cricket because it's like baseball like but then they just start doing things that make no sense if you're right thinking in terms of baseball rules Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think they're all they're all kind of related, like bat and ball, stick and ball game.
0: Okay. You know? Okay.
1: The first recorded baseball game on this continent was actually in Canada in 1838. Uh oh. By 1845, a guy named Alexander Cartwright was one of the founding members of a New York baseball club called the New York Knickerbockers Baseball Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, along with club members William R. Wheaton and William H. Tucker, they started writing down and establishing a set of rules okay. to kind of try and unify the game. So this was like the first attempt to almost sort of formalize the game. Mm -hmm. Um, This was called Knickerbocker Rules Baseball. Knickerbocker, friend of the pod,
0: Washington Irving. Yep,
1: (laughs) Knickerbocker Rules Baseball. I was just reading like the description of it. I'm not going to go into it. It's Mm -hmm. super different. It doesn't sound like the game that we know today particularly, but it's kind of the first attempt to like make it a legit game. So because of this, Cartwright is usually called the quote, father of baseball. It started to just explode in popularity, particularly on the East Coast and especially in New York. Okay. So by 1850, that's around the time it was becoming referred to as the national pastime ah okay if you watch that kim burns documentary he's got photos of like civil war soldiers like playing baseball wow in 1857 the first governing body for the sport was the national association of baseball players they sort of again started trying to formalize it nationalize it and of course within about 20 years they had successfully banned the participation of any black players (sighs) Now, the first professional baseball team was the Cincinnati Red Stockings. They are technically not the same team as the Cincinnati Reds. Like I've seen people try to say like, oh, the Reds are the oldest baseball team because they grew out of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Mm -hmm. They're actually technically two different teams. But if you are a Reds fan, it is a super old team. They were established in 1882 oh wow
0: i don't know why i don't think of like there are certain sports that i understand are old but Mm -hmm. american sports baseball and football i'm like no they started like in the 1920s yeah
1: (laughs) that's it um no yeah i mean they go back you know like i said at least to the civil war you know a version of a game that's like similar to what we play today yeah. So professional teams started to kind of form around this time, and the National League, which was sort of the first like fully like professional team, was formed in 1876. A rival and much smaller Western League was formed in 1893. That mm-hmm. would eventually grow into the American League. Okay. So when we talk about Major League Baseball today, as everyone knows, we have the National League and you have the American League, and then they. Mm -hmm. each other everyone knows that yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and then you know the the pennant winners of each league will then compete against each other in the world series that's how it works okay but they're all under the umbrella of major league baseball Okay. Well, they had started actually as separate, totally separate and rival organizations with like their own rules of play, et cetera. But a, an agreement was formed between the National League and the American League in 1903, along with the National Association of Professional Leagues, which represented like the smaller regional clubs that sort of formed the core of what would become like the minor leagues. Okay. So there were still separate organizations, but they had formed this like agreement. And this is when you started having the teams competing against each other in what would become the world series okay just a little sidebar about baseball at this time this was sort of called the dead ball era okay so what this means because of a few factors the ballparks for one thing were fucking huge at the time like bigger than they are today they used different types of swings like the baltimore chop was one (laughs) famous one okay um and then the balls themselves were different they were like bigger and spongier so what this meant is that there were almost no home runs like i think oh, okay like a home run leading team would have maybe 10 home runs in a season okay so the game was very different it was much more based on speed it was all about like getting singles getting on base stealing bases infield strategy stuff like that i got to say like personally they they have these like dead ball recreation leagues that,
0: uh-huh.
1: you know it's sort of like dead ball league reenactor teams <laughs> that you can see and i've watched a couple dead ball baseball games there uh-huh. if you're a baseball fan and you like that kind. The infield action like I do because I get real bored with like the home runs mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of fun it, It's nice. a, but it's a very it's a very different feeling game Mm -hmm. Um, But a couple things sort of started to change the sport. They started going to these smaller, harder balls. You had Babe Ruth came along and became this home run slugger. Mm -hmm. So everyone got excited about home runs. Um, And then you also had the combination, to go back to last week's episode, you had the combination of the Black Sox scandal and the appointment of Kennesaw Mountain Landis as this like centralized, all-powerful baseball commissioner. This kind of set the stage for what would become Major League Baseball. They brought the rival leagues kind of together under one umbrella okay and what's interesting is that the leagues like national league and american league still have different rules like the most famous being the in the national league pitchers still will hit whereas in the american league they'll have the designated hitter okay okay um but they're all it's all essentially one game now Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the Negro Leagues. Like I said, Black people had been pushed out of the sport, largely by sort of the 1870s. Now, Jackie Robinson is kind of rightly seen as like the man who broke the color barrier. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about Major League Baseball. Right. He was actually not the first black man to play on white teams as a professional baseball player. The first was a guy named Bud Fowler. Okay. So Bud Fowler, he's the earliest known black professional baseball player. He played a few games with some clubs in like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, and then he moved to the Keokuk Hawkeyes in Keokuk, Iowa, which was part of the Western League, which later would become the American League. A couple interesting things about Fowler. He was extremely popular. So a local newspaper said of him, this was In Iowa, they said he was, quote, a good ball player, a hard worker, a genius on the ball field, intelligent, gentlemanly in his conduct, and deserving of the good opinion entertained for him by baseball admirers here. Hmm. That's a weird quote to me because it's like complimentary, but there's something defensive of it. Like, you know, with this, he's deserving of the good opinion.
0: Well, yeah. There's also something a little like dog whistly in there, right? Like gentlemanly, not at all what you would suspect, you know? I mean, in a way,
1: not to to call out a current, mostly good-hearted president, but it reminds (laughs) me of like Biden in the 2008 campaign where he was like, oh, this Barack
0: Obama, he's very clean. It's like Joe Uh, yeah. Joe. You can't talk about people like that. Yeah. yeah because it, it, you know, the thing of it, and I'm sure our our listeners understand where we're coming from, but it sets that person up by saying those things about him. It sets him up as standing in relief right. to all other members of his community.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, good for them for being like, yeah, we like this guy, but there's still some yeah. nonsense going on there. Yeah. Fowler, and this is a thing you find with Negro League players, is he just moved all over the place. He didn't stay in one mm. place for long. He would play on teams in like Pueblo, Colorado. He played wow. in Kansas. He played in Indiana. He played in Nebraska. He formed an all-black baseball team. They were called the Page Fence Giants in Michigan in 1895. He then would go on to manage several teams. He was actually so well respected for just his like knowledge of the sport that mm. managers, owners, other ball players would go to him for advice from all over the country country Oh, wow. He was really instrumental in promoting the formation of all-Black baseball clubs, and he was the first to organize the first Black barnstorming club. So what barnstorming means, like, in sports or baseball terms, is, like, teams that would, like... It's kind of like the Harlem
0: Globetrotters. Yeah, you mentioned this last week. Yeah,
1: they, like, go all
0: over the
1: country, sort of freelance, playing in towns, doing these exhibition matches. You know, they would go into a town, play their little sort of semi-pro or regional ball club. It was sort of a... It's almost like like a traveling carnival, you know? right?
0: Like the games don't mean anything. Nobody wins anything right. at the end of the right. The- well,
1: what what. Uh- differentiates a barnstorming team from like a typical traveling team because obviously baseball teams travel all the time right is that these barnstorming teams they operated outside of the established leagues Mm -hmm. um so they're just kind of these freelance operators like going like coming into a town being like hey let's play your club and you know people would show up and unfortunately he did die penniless in 1913 Mm -hmm. but he was actually he was still so well known that when it was discovered that he had died and that he had essentially died in poverty this was covered by the national media oh he was very he was famous yeah um like not just with black baseball fans but like across the board because these barnstorming teams they would go and play white teams in these times, you know? Okay, so the first nationally known professional Black team was founded in 1885. There were three baseball clubs, the Keystone Athletics of Philadelphia, the Orions of Philadelphia, and then the Manhattans of Washington, D.C. They all merged to form a team called the Cuban Giants. The team would play amateur white teams in the region. They were so good that a promoter named Walter Cook noticed them, and then he tried to use them as like the cornerstone to actually create a league. Mm. them mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the name the cuban giants and this okay. is gonna piss you off Oh, okay and for a good reason <laughs> okay okay so it was this walter cook who decided to call them quote cuban mm-hmm. nobody on the team was cuban but they had played in cuba for a while so cook decided rather than say this is american black men playing the sport he tried to pass them off as like foreigners uh because he ah. thought that would be more palatable to white okay. audiences Okay, and to maintain this illusion, he would actually have the team members out on the field start talking to each other in like gibberish because the white spectators thought it was Spanish.
0: Uh, Listeners, you can't see me, but I'm just I'm cringing. Yeah, it's another one of those hard
1: cringing so hard your face might collapse in on itself. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. I I was reading that and just went. Okay. <laughs> like not, uh, it's shocking, but it's not surprising <laughs> at all.
0: Yeah. Quick sidebar. I don't know if this comes from being bilingual and being raised in a bilingual home for me, but it's interesting to me that people could hear some, could hear other people essentially just making sounds and be like, oh, that's a language. Yeah. Like I'm only bilingual. I only speak English and Spanish and I feel confident I could pick out a gibberish language from a language that has no roots in like the wrong Romance languages right like you know what i, I mean? feel like
1: i can tell the difference between like people doing fake sort of parody japanese and like japanese actual japanese you know
0: right these are yeah. that's a
1: language i have no experience with but i can tell gibberish from japanese so the fact that like these audiences couldn't tell the difference between gibberish and spanish is just
0: <sighs> what you're what, around when this would have been
1: around the 1880s Jesus.
0: Okay. Yep.
1: But so the Cuban Giants, they became very popular. This led to the first official Negro League. Now, it's important to point out the Negro Leagues, like, there were a bunch of different Negro Leagues. Like, there wasn't one single Negro League. It wasn't okay. like you had Major League Baseball, and then you had the Negro League kind of running parallel you had major league baseball you had the minor leagues and then you had the negro leagues which kind of had their own major leagues and minor leagues but they were just fractured and all over the country okay so this first negro league quote-unquote was the national colored baseball league and by the way just to point out all these terms negro colored these are not mine they (laughs) are are
0: they're (laughs) Scotty's. yeah
1: So this National Color Baseball League, it was organized strictly as like a regional minor league. It comprised of the Baltimore Lord Baltimores, which is just like that's, the best. That's too team much. Name. <laughs> that's too much. That's too much of a lot of a mouthful. The Boston Resolutes, mm. the Louisville Fall City, the New York Gorums, the Philadelphia Pythians, and the Pittsburgh Keystones.
0: Then you're just making up sounds.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think Pythians is an actual word, Gorums. I'm like, what the hell is that?
0: Yeah, this is the Colorado Blonde Gorums.
1: So there was an agreement with like the White National League to classify the league as an official minor league team. What this did, along with the use of reserve clauses, if you remember me talking about reserve clauses last week, Mm -hmm. it basically stopped any other professional ball clubs from being able to sign any of these players. So it kind of kept them in one spot. Now, interestingly, the Cuban Giants, they weren't part of this Negro League, but their popularity was kind of what inspired it. Um, Unfortunately, this league did fail within a year, Mm. uh, but the Cuban Giants remained popular and this led to like a bunch of splinter groups and copycat teams. So then you ended up with like the Cuban X Giants, the genuine Cuban Giants, the Columbia Giants, the Brooklyn
0: Royal Giants. That's too much. Uh, Yeah. uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) so the compromise of 1877 it's solidified jim crow laws all throughout the south at the same time the chicago white stockings which would become the white Sox, okay uh, refused to play against the newark giants newark as in newark and new jersey Mm -hmm. uh, which had two black players the newark giants capitulated they kicked the black players off the team Then the league went on to create bylaws which banned any teams from offering contracts to black players citing the quote hazard
0: team. what was the alleged hazard? Just uh, like having that, that having a couple are black, black players around.
1: Yeah, that's the hazard.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so this, is, like I said, you know, baseball sort of started to solidify into it like a real sport in the eighteen fifties, and within 20 years, they had pretty much said, Yeah, but no black people. Okay. But these Negro Leagues were rising, and then a Black baseball player, a guy named Frank Leland, he had started in this National Colored Baseball League. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which team he played for, but he moved to Chicago, and once he got there, he convinced some Black businessmen to like sponsor the formation of a team. This team would become the Chicago Unions, which later became known as the Leland Giants in 1905. He was ultimately responsible for organizing five Black baseball teams around the city, and this would become the core of what would be the top negro league in the midwest okay so as this league rose in popularity more similar negro leagues would spring up all around the country and become increasingly popular so this was like the establishment of the negro leagues Mm. Over time, the various leagues consolidated into the Negro National League in 1933 and the Negro American League in 1937. So this was like, at this point, they are kind of mirroring Major League Baseball. And they would even compete in their own World Series between 1942 and 1948. Okay. So a couple of things to note about the Negro Leagues before I move on to Satchel Paige is it's easy to kind of dismiss the Negro Leagues as being like the lesser, you know, you have Major League Baseball, the best baseball players in the world, the Negro Leagues being this kind of lesser thing. In fact, a lot of the greatest baseball players were being cultivated within these Negro Leagues. Uh, only reason they weren't playing in the Major League Baseball, American and National Leagues, was because as this Kevin Blackistone says in his article, the white players and white teams decided to segregate themselves. Yeah. So they weren't necessarily the best
0: players. They were just Mm -hmm. the white players. They were the whitest players. Exactly. Which, I mean, honestly, par for course with history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now with that in mind, let's talk about Satchel Page. Oh, right. Okay.
1: Yes. So Leroy Robert Page was born on July seventh, nineteen oh six in Mobile, Alabama. His mm-hmm. father was a gardener and his mother was a domestic worker. Mm-hmm. He is his first like childhood job. He would work at like the train station and he would, you know, do odd jobs around the train station. He would clean up, shine shoes, and he would also carry bags for passengers. I'm um, sorry, what year was he born? Nineteen oh six. So this okay. would have been around nineteen sixteen. Okay. I think he was about 10 years old. He's working at a train station. He would be paid a dime a bag, which he decided wasn't enough money. So he actually built this contraption to like haul four bags at once. It had Ooh. like ropes and pulleys, and I think he would pull it over his shoulder. Oh, like he
0: wore them? Okay.
1: Yeah. So okay. another kid who worked there told him, he said, you look like a walking satchel tree. This is how he got his nickname, Satchel. Um, nice. Now, later on, a friend of his did sort of contradict his story and say, no, that's not, because that's the story Satchel Page would tell. Uh-huh. this this friend would be like that's not where he got the name he got it because he got caught trying to actually steal a bag oh. so who knows? who knows who knows okay by 10 years old he was like the neighborhood star in a game that was called top ball okay so top ball was basically baseball but instead of like bats and balls they would use broomsticks and bottle caps
0: like hitting bottle caps with a broomstick? Exactly. Wow. I feel like then going to baseball is just easier. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking. (laughs) Right. Because like,
1: I'm just trying to imagine hitting a bottle cap with the broomstick. Yeah. It's already hard enough to hit a baseball.
0: Yeah. um, All right. Good on you. Top ball.
1: So he was like a top ball star. And his mom even said that he was just like obsessed with baseball. And they would just Mm. only talk about baseball. Just baseball, baseball, baseball all the Mm -hmm. time. On July 24th, 1918, just after his 12th birthday, he was sentenced to six years at the Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers. What? Yeah. Just take in that name for a second. Alabama Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers.
0: What the Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let you continue. I have so many questions.
1: The story that was told about this, I think, kind of while he was like his star was rising, was people said he got locked up for shoplifting. Uh huh. It's since been proven that actually the reason he was sentenced to reform school is that he and his friends got into a rock fight with a bunch of local white boys in Mobile, and of course the black kids were the ones who were sent to reform school. Right. A rock fight. Yeah. Okay. This makes me think of uh, yep. <laughs> it, uh, Stephen King's yep. It in the Great Rock Fight. I almost yep. wonder if he was like, because Stephen King's like famously a huge baseball fan. I wonder if he knows this story and kind of worked it into it. Yeah. But while he was in reform school, that's when he really learned the game of baseball and where he learned to pitch. He was coached by a man named Reverend Moses Davis. Moses was a trustee of the school, but he would like spend his days working with the kids. And one of his ways to like kind of keep the kids on the straight and narrow was he would spend his days coaching them at baseball, teaching them mm. baseball. Davis was black, as were all of the teaching staff at this school. So this is what Satchel later said about it. He says, I traded five years of freedom to learn how to pitch. At least I started my real learning on the Mount. They were not wasted years at all. It made a real man out of me. Um, so he's 12 he's 12 he gets released in 1823 when he's 17 years old wow he goes on to play around mobile for like a bunch of different semi-pro teams including a team called the mobile tigers and another team called the down the bay boys Um, (laughs) (laughs)
0: like these fucking names i kind of wish
1: we still had names like
0: this yeah the hot Um, dog and mustard gang yeah
1: Yeah, it's very like Little Rascals kind of feel. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so this is a famous story about him. During one of his games with the Down the Bay boys, he got real pissed off during the game. It was in the ninth inning. He's pitching. They're down one to zero. Or no, they were up one to zero. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But then his teammates, you know, he's pitching. His teammates in the infield made three consecutive errors in the Oof. ninth inning, almost losing the game for him. So the fans start booing. Satchel gets pissed. He calls in all the infielders and he's like, sit down. And he makes them sit down in the infield. Uh-huh. Piss them off. Right. So he's got the fans heckling him. He's got his teammates heckling him. And he turns around and strikes out the final batter and wins the game.
0: Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about some crew cut energy. <laughs> yeah. That, well, and also like, that's just, that's some, um, that's a ballsy move. to yeah. be like, sit down, sit down, shut up and let me work. Yeah. Boom.
1: And he's young. Yeah. He's, he's real young. Well, his star sort of just around Mobile and throughout the South is really starting to rise. Like people are starting mm-hmm. to hear about this Satchel Paige. So a guy named Alex Herman, who is the manager for the Chattanooga White Sox, which was a team of the Negro Southern League, he kind of officially discovered Paige in 1926. Hired him for $250 a month. So this would be about $4,000 in today's wow. money. Paige took $50 of that and then would send the rest to his mother. Oh. He immediately started getting notice in the local presses right after he joined the team. I think it was like in his first or second game. He recorded nine strikeouts in six innings against the Atlanta Black Crackers. Wow. Uh-huh. But then, the Atlanta the,
0: Black Crackers? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm just fascinated with these names. Yeah. <laughs>
1: The The next year, he was traded to the Birmingham Black Barons. This was a good thing for him because this was part of the larger Negro National League. So this is like okay. what's starting to become like their major leagues, you okay. know, the Negro version, the Negro League's version of the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, he was known right away for throwing real hard, but also being like kind of a wild pitcher. So mm. just a little bit about pitching. Like you have sort of a couple different approaches to pitching. You have your guys who throw heaters which are like real hard fastballs. Mm -hmm. Um, A good, well-thrown hard fastball is hard to hit because it's real fucking fast. The problem is it's really hard to throw them and it's really hard to throw them consistently. So he was one of those like heaters. Like he would just fucking throw the ball as hard as he could, but he had like not a lot of control. Okay. In his first game of the 1927 season against the St. Louis Stars, he actually incited a brawl with his fastball because it hit the hand of the batter, a guy named Mitchell (sighs) Murray. Ooh. so murray got pissed charged the mound and threw his bat at Paige. who was like running away he was trying to get into the <laughs> dugout <laughs> this mitchell murray threw the bat and hit him in the hip and it just started a big brawl police were called and of course the local newspaper the birmingham reporter characterized it as a quote near riot of course of course Right Now he did steadily improve as a pitcher. He started working in other like off-speed pitches and stuff into his repertoire. You know, he would work in a curveball and he he actually would like invent a lot of pitches and I'll kind of get to that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But he started really like just dialing down, zeroing in and becoming like just a really good all-around pitcher. He finished that season with seven wins to one loss. and 69 strikeouts. Hmm. He continued maturing as a player. The next season, he recorded 176 strikeouts. Or no, that was in 1929, sorry, which was the all-time season record in the Negro Leagues at the time. Mm-hmm. In one game on April 29th, he recorded 17 strikeouts against the Cuban Stars, which broke the league record of that year. He was so effective and popular that the Barons owner, R.T. Jackson, would actually rent him out to other teams. Like these other struggling smaller teams couldn't draw a crowd. right? So they would rent Satchel Paige to come play for them for like a game or two to draw a crowd, bring in some revenue. Right. And then he would take like a cut of the earnings. Okay, that. he ended up going to play in the Cuban League in 1931. He played winter ball in the Cuban League. He kind of left under cover of night, though, <laughs> and that's a little mysterious what happened. He was like one thing about Satchel Page is he was kind of a known carouser. Okay, <laughs> um, and whenever American baseball players would go to play in Cuba, they were not allowed to drink or gamble because drinking and gambling this was like Havana of you know the you yeah. know 1920s and 1930s you know it's gambling <laughs> and drinking like crazys party. Yeah, of so the baseball players were like not allowed to do that and satchel didn't like that so there are a couple stories about why he left kind of in the middle of the season Mm -hmm. in one story uh the mayor of a town came up to him and in spanish asked him if he had lost a particular game on purpose satchel didn't understand spanish so he just kind of smiled and nodded (laughs) oh which was the wrong thing to, to say so then he had to run because the mayor tried to attack him oh shit okay in another story he caught the fancy of like a real pretty local girl Mm-hmm. so he was like trying to go to her to like court her you know and he went to her house well her family interpreted this as him offering an official engagement so they called the police to enforce the engagement <laughs> oh shit okay and he was like uh whoops uh, like, i was just coming by
0: f- to say hi yeah <laughs> um, so,
1: so he just got the fuck off the island.
0: Okay, point. yeah.
1: There are a couple other stories, you know, kind of along those lines. So back in the US, he kept playing at all these other clubs. He played for the Baltimore Black Sox. He played for the chicago american giants he was still on this i believe it was the chattanooga team or no it was the birmingham black barons he's still like officially on the black barons but he's just getting rented out to all these other teams this is important when we talk about like his record which i'll get to here in a little
0: bit okay
1: the thing to know is he was just playing everywhere all the fucking time Yeah. Like just never a break. As everything else during the Great Depression, these Negro leagues suffered. So the Black Barons had to temporarily disband in 1931. Most satchel was like one of the big stars. So most of the teams really couldn't afford him. But the Nashville Elite Giants owner Tom Wilson bought his contract and put him on the team, which uh moved to Cleveland and became the Cleveland Cubs. And this is kind of important because he's playing in the first this is, I think, the first time he's playing in a city that had a major league team. Mm they're playing at this kind of smaller, dumpier ballpark, kind of in the shadow of, like, Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Mm-hmm. And Satchel later said he just felt this, like, resentment for having to, like, play in the shadow of, like, mm. you know this nice city stadium, yeah. you know? So, like I said, he kept moving around. He played Pennsylvania, California, South Carolina. He played on the Negro League All Star team in 1931. This would play against like white All Star teams from the minor leagues. In his first game, he won eight to one, struck out 11 batters, only allowed five hits. He finished that winter with a six zero win loss record with 70 strikeouts over 58 innings. His best season as a pitcher was in 1934. Okay. Uh, he was playing for a team called the North Dakota Bismarcks. He had a 14 to two win loss record and a 2.16 era that july he threw a second no hitter against the homestead grays striking out 17 batters Mm. and like striking out 17 batters in one game is like that's that's a fucking lot yeah you know when pitching against a future hall of famer guy named buck leonard leonard was so freaked out by the way the ball moved (laughs) that he told the umpire he was like you need to check that ball i think he's scuffing the ball what does uh, that mean? Like what they used to do, you know, it's like the idea of a spitball, or they would have a piece of sandpaper in their glove and would like scratch the ball because okay. if the ball gets in a regular shape,
0: it moves weird in the air. Okay. This is that is like, what they were, is, is that what the dude was doing in, in major league, right? Mm-hmm. And he would like put the, well, I don't know what he would put on it, but so it would like. Yeah.
1: One, well, it's, <laughs> it's actually, it's actually a big controversy now because they're banning like all sorts of sticky substances mm. now in the game. Mm-hmm. And all these pitchers are like bitching and moaning about it like one guy is like this caused my arm injury because i can't put sticky stuff on the ball anymore because they're all saying it's like well the sticky stuff's really just for our grip it's just so we can grip the ball better but it's like okay guys (laughs) like we all know pitchers i mean pitchers like to fuck up balls because the thing is like a good pitch isn't necessarily a straight pitch over home plate right because that's the pitch a batter's gonna hit yeah unless you throw it at 100 miles an hour like you want to like paint the corners of the strike zone you want to have Have a curveball that like goes in and then dips out of the strike zone, you know, all sorts of things. So he had this like all these pitches that would just move weird so this buck leonard was like he's scuffing the ball you need to check okay. the ball and page sees that they're looking at the ball and the umpire actually threw the ball out so page yells at them from the mound he says you might as well throw them all out because they're all going to jump like that <laughs> <laughs> he started playing internationally like i said this is very much the cliff notes i'm just kind of just walking us through like the big oh, yeah. highlights he played in the dominican republic in 1937 Well, there he had to play shadowed by armed guards um, Oh, the guards were there supposedly to protect the players but the players were real worried because they thought they were actually hired by the owner and if they had lost the championship the guards were actually there to attack them
0: oh wow
1: yeah (laughs) so this is like the conditions he's having to play yeah his team the dragones uh went on to win that championship so over all of his years in the negro leagues which was from 1926 to 1948 wow Or 3.10. He walked about half as many hitters as the MLB average. Okay. And he had two and a half times more strikeouts. He did this while playing year round, which most major league players won't do. You know, they play during the baseball season and that's it, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of spring through fall. He would play all year round when it's off season. He's playing in Latin America or he's playing up in Canada. You know, he would play these exhibition games. He would do these barnstorming games. Like he would play seven days a week, along with his later career in major league baseball, where, by the way, he pitched into his fifties. Wow. um, He probably pitched the baseball more times than anyone else in history. So the MLB record for innings pitched by a single pitcher over the entirety of their career is Cy Young, who pitched 7,356 innings wow. over his career. Satchel is credited with only 2,671 innings pitched, but this doesn't account for all the exhibition games, all the foreign games, etc. Oh, wow. Okay. So Satchel himself estimated that he played 2,500 games over his career. Now, if you conservatively estimate that he would pitch maybe three three to five innings per game. Mm -hmm. We're talking about ten to 12,000 innings pitched. Wow. Yeah. And this might even be like an underestimation. Right. So like I said, he started out as a guy who threw the heater. Even Joe DiMaggio said his fastball was one of the hardest thrown he'd ever seen. Wow. But after an injury while he was playing in Mexico, he sort of started to expand his repertoire. He added at least 10 new pitches to his arsenal, including like a standard curveball, a sinker, a slider, all those. But he also like invented all these... like real weird ass pitches mm-hmm. were called like wobbly ball and the dipsy <laughs> do and things like that. <laughs> he could throw them at different speeds, at different arm angles. He was so precise, he could essentially hit anywhere on the corners of the strike wow. zone. He was one of the first pitchers to throw what's called the slurve, which is like a combination of a slider and a curveball. Wow. And then probably his most famous pitch was his changeup. Okay. So, a changeup, for those of you who don't know much about baseball, the whole idea of a changeup is that it's a deceptive pitch. It looks like when it's released from the arm, it looks like a fastball. But because of the grip, it actually travels much slower. So the idea is to fake out the batter and get them to swing too early.
0: Okay.
1: So he had this changeup that he called the hesitation pitch. It was so devastating to batters that they ended up banning it in
0: Major League Shut Baseball. Shut <laughs>
1: up! Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. Okay. Um, but he was also able to throw an effective fastball well into his late 30s. So this is what he had to say about his hesitation pitch. He says, The idea came to me in a game when the guy at bat was all tighted up and waiting for my fastball. I knew he'd swing as soon as I just barely moved. So when I stretched, I paused just a little longer with my arms above my head. Then I threw my left foot forward, but I didn't come around with my arm right away. I put that foot of mine down stopping for a second before the ball left my hand when my foot hit the ground that boy started swinging so by the time i came around with the whip he was way off stride and couldn't get anywhere near the ball i had me a strike up
0: wow
1: like i said i'll talk a little bit more about the hesitation pitch okay uh so a baseball writer named joe posanonski he called satchel the hardest thrower in the history of baseball mm. okay so like i said cliff's notes he had his long long career in the negro leagues Mm -hmm. can't go through all of it so let's get to 1948 where on his 42nd birthday he joined major league baseball okay so he signed a contract with the cleveland indians for forty thousand dollars this made him the first black pitcher in the American League and the okay. seventh black Major League Baseball player overall. So this is after Jackie wow. Robinson. Okay, okay. He was also considered a rookie. He was the oldest rookie in the ma- yeah. in the majors because he's 42 years old. At this yeah. Point. But I mean, can you really call this guy a rookie at this point? Yeah, okay, yeah. So in his first game against the St. Louis Browns, the Browns were beating Cleveland 4-1. to Manager Lou Boudreau pulled starting pitcher Bob Lemon in the fourth inning and then sent Satchel in. Satchel didn't know the catcher signed so he started off being real like tentative with his pitches this allowed the batter chuck stevens to line into left field for a single then a guy named jerry pretty was able to bunt stevens over to second base so the third batter comes up to the plate satchel's basically like fuck it and the reason he's playing real he's pitching real carefully is he didn't really know the catcher's signs he didn't want to confuse the catcher so he was just kind of being very careful but after you know he got two hits on him he was like fuck it and he just took command he threw his hesitation pitch this confused the batter whitney platt so much that he actually threw his bat 40 feet up the third baseline. (laughs) And so this is when they started talking about banning this pitch because the problem they saw with the pitch Mm -hmm. is that it was very close to what is called a bulk in baseball okay so not to get too deep in the weeds but a pitcher is said to balk when he goes to like do his pitch and then stops okay Um, that's called a balk and that's considered illegal so at that point the umpire will walk the batter okay so after he threw this hesitation pitch you know whitney platt complained a bunch of people complained they ended up banning the pitch and basically telling him if you keep throwing this pitch we're gonna say it's a balk in your walking batters and then a chicago cubs broadcaster going to jack brickhouse would say of satchel it sounds like sort of affectionately he said he threw a lot of pitches that are not quite legal and not quite illegal Okay. And then once once they banned the pitch, it was the American League president banned the pitch, decided to ban it. So Paige said, well, I guess Mr. Harridge did not want me to show up those boys who were young enough to be my sons. So
0: <laughs> not okay. particularly
1: apologetic. Yeah. So during that 1948 season, the Cleveland Indians were in a heated pennant race with the Chicago White Sox. If you remember from last week, the White Sox, after the Black Sox scandal, they didn't make it into another World Series.
0: Oh, right, right, right.
1: But this was the closest they came. They were in a pennant race with Cleveland. In a game against the White Sox, almost 80,000 people came to watch Satchel pitch at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Satchel gave up only two singles and one double for his second consecutive shutout. His win-loss record was 5-1, to one, and he had an ERA that year of 1.33, which is, and keep in mind, he's like in his 40s at this point wow so he ended up making one appearance in the world series against the boston braves once the indians got in he pitched for two-thirds of an inning in game five gave up a sacrifice fly to warren spawn got called for a balk probably because he was doing his hesitation pitch Mm -hmm. and then got tommy holmes to ground out to shortstop so not necessarily great showing in the world series that year Um, but the indians did win that series in six games and that of course is the last time the cleveland indians have won a world series wow so he played in major league baseball until 1955 and again cliff's notes he's moving all over the place he's playing for different teams he went and played for the st louis browns for a while in 1955 he went back to the minor leagues to play he played for the greensboro patriots bounced around the minors the international leagues into the early 1960s and then jesus in, yeah. in 1965 okay uh, the kansas city <laughs> athletics owner charles o finley signed page who is 59 years old to God. come and play a single game against the Boston Red Sox. And it sounds like this was a little bit, I don't want to say a stunt, but he Finley brought on for this game like a bunch of sort of the most well-respected Negro Leagues players to mm-hmm. come play this game against the Red Sox. So between innings, sitting in the bullpen, he would sit in a rocking chair and get served coffee by a nurse. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, which is, I think, him just kind of fucking with people a little bit. He pitched four innings when he left the mound, which was his last day mm-hmm. ever playing baseball. When he left the mound, he received a standing ovation from the crowd. The lights dimmed and fans lit matches and cigarette lighters while singing The Old Grey Mare as he walked off. And that was the end of his baseball career. Now, he did go on and manage teams and stuff okay. after that. In 1966, when Ted Williams, famous Red Sox player, was being inducted into the Hall of Fame, in his speech, he urged the induction of the Negro League players. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the Major League Baseball, they formed a 10, or I guess it's whoever runs the Hall of Fame, they formed a 10-man committee to sift through the hundreds of names and nominate the first group of four Negro League players wow. to go into the Hall of Of fame by 1971, pretty much everyone had decided the first person in has to be Satchel Page. Okay, so he was the first Negro League pitcher to get elected. They were initially going to put him and the other Negro League players in the quote Negro wing of the Hall of Fame. This is 1971.
0: <laughs> yeah. Again, listeners can't see my face. Yeah. Uh, but I'm I'm basically the the closed eyed emoji. <laughs>
1: exactly. Right now,
0: <laughs> I'm very uh, I I can't even say skeptical. I'm yeah. I'm I'm cynical. Hmm, maybe <laughs> cynic- Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the
1: initial plan: is they're going to create a Negro wing. Predictably and rightly, there were a lot of complaints. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And so they dropped the idea of a Negro wing. And so there is no separate wing at all. Satchel Paige is simply a Hall of Famer. End of Uh, story. Satchel Paige died of a heart attack in Kansas City on June 8th, 1982. He's buried uh, on Page Island in the Forest Hill Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. That is the story of the Negro Leagues, the very abbreviated story of the Negro Leagues and and career of Satchel Paige. Oh, what a story. Yeah. Wow. I and like I think, you know, Satchel Page is very well known. I, I wanna say even like is it Billy Crystal? Someone like or it's Jerry Seinfeld or somebody's oldest son is named Satchel after Satchel Page.
0: Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean,
1: and you know, the same as like I was thinking about Shoeless Joe last week. I mean, there are parks named after him. There's like he's celebrated, but the fact that it took him until he was 42 years old to make it into Major League Baseball, where he still fucking dominated. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like he was 42 and then like by 45 he was like, okay, I'm done.
1: Yeah. Like he wasn't broken down. He was still. You know, he couldn't throw the fastball like he used to, but he had these 10 other pitches that he
0: that that because. I mean there are like we know we know sports are hard on on bodies yeah. um and I I know what I know about baseball is pitchers and catchers that their bodies take
1: yeah i mean a beating I, I think it's sort of the pitchers and the catchers when you look at like who ends up on the injured list
0: yeah
1: and like like i said at the beginning like this is not cleveland's finest season right now and the reason right. why is like their starting rotation of pitchers all their great pitchers are all on the injured list right now <laughs> so they're like having to go to the bullpen and get these young guys who are used to pitching two innings and it's like no you got to go six innings and which yeah. Not ready for it, but it is because, yeah, being a pitcher, you know, if you think about being an outfielder, like a lot of your job is standing around.
0: Yeah. You're standing
1: around in the outfield waiting to maybe catch a ball. And sometimes you got to run and like jump and whatever to get the ball, but you're mostly standing there. And even right. as a batter, you're kind of standing there waiting for the pitch to come. But if you're a pitcher, I <sighs> mean, just imagine just the stress you're putting on one arm.
0: Yeah, constantly. it's the repetitive. Um, and right. especially if you're talking about, you know, people who are throwing hard and fast, like. Right. Well, that's why like
1: anymore, if you have a starting pitcher who's expected to go mm-hmm. seven to eight innings or something, mm-hmm. you know, they're mostly going to be throwing breaking balls. They're going to be throwing curve balls and things like that, because those are mm-hmm. easier on the arm. You know, you get the closers to come in and these are the guys like there's a guy for the yankees right now aroldis chapman Mm -hmm. who throws like 105 mile per hour fastball i think but he's like good for one inning yeah (laughs) that's all he can get out of him because i mean just imagine the stress you're putting on your arm and like satchel page was doing that into his late 30s you know wow so
0: well (sighs) That was, I, I expected that story to be frankly worse and more depressing. So I'm, I'm glad it, it wasn't.
1: Yeah, no, I think like all of these Negro league players, you know, it was sort of a lot of feast or famine for him for a lot of his career. I think, you know, he was not necessarily rolling in money. He was, but I think the thing about him, like when you read about him playing all these barnstorming games and all these Mm -hmm. like playing in the Dominican Republic and playing in Cuba and playing in Canada, just playing all of the time, some Mm -hmm. of it was for money, but I think a lot of it was he just loved playing baseball.
0: Yeah. So there you go. There we go. All right, this is and the I'm end. I'm done of with baseball. Sc- for a while. Yeah, Scotty's baseball series. He's done with that. I don't have to try to find something to link <laughs> to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well done. All right, go and uh, go and play some stickball out in the yard with your friends. Uh, watch for cars. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we we'll blow your mind. With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing